All right, Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 25. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. In the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And thus is the reading of God's word. And all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask now that you would open up your word unto us, that above all else, through the creation, we might see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, As we're going through the book of Genesis, you know, we're just beginning, and it's difficult to see the things that are written therein. There's a lot of symbolic language, a lot of parabolic language, uh, allegories, things that, uh, as we move through the Scripture, we'll appreciate more because from beginning to end, the Bible is uh, written in such a way that revelation increases as you go through it. Things are set before us rather clearly, and as you might expect, the very last book of the Bible is called Revelation, where Christ is clearly set in front of us for who he is, what he's done, what he's uh, presently doing, and what things will be like uh, moving forward when there is a time when time is no more. So the Bible is increasing revelation as we go through it. So right now we're in a section that it's kind of difficult to see what's going on here. A lot of symbolic language. And what we need to understand as we go through this is not only did God create everything, but he created it in such a way as to teach about himself. So in this section here, what we're talking about is the development of man. We're talking about the things that God did to develop man so that man would be after his image and his likeness. So We'll look into that a little bit more today. We're going to look at, Lord willing, days four and five of the creative event so that we would, again, appreciate what God is doing um, 
in the heart of man. That's the goal here is to understand God's work in man so that man would ultimately be in the image and likeness of God. So we've got a long way to go before we can get there, but this language is set before us in the scripture that we would appreciate that, you know what? God's pretty clever. Not only did he create everything, but he did it in such a way as to teach us about himself, teach us these things. So let's, uh, we'll begin, but before I do, I want to, some clarification on something I'd made last week. I made a comment that um, uh, when my wife was at her reunion that somebody came up and asked her if she was a Christian. I was trying to abbreviate the story. What they asked her was, is your husband a pastor? Now, lots of people ask questions like I do. I ask people if they go to church. I'm not really asking them how they spend their Sunday mornings. I'm really asking them if they're a Christian. So that, Christ, that question was, I believe, intended to ask my wife whether or not she was a Christian. Now, you'll see that in the Gospels, people will ask Jesus a question, and he answers the real one that's on their heart. That's where he always takes it to what's on people's hearts. And so when I ask somebody if they go to church, I'm asking them if they're a Christian. If somebody asks my wife if, she, if her husband's a pastor, they're really trying to find out whether or not my wife is a Christian. In the case of this woman, she shared that her daughter was a Christian and that she was at a point in her life where she was contemplating the serious nature of the gospel of Christ in her own life. So it was a wonderful occasion for them to come together, but I abbreviated the story um, so we could get on with the uh, lesson of the day. So having said that, again, just as the Lord always ferrets out what's in the heart of an individual, the scripture tells us about him that he is a discerner of the thoughts and tense of the heart. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Christ knows what's in everybody's heart. He knows what you're thinking and why you are thinking, and he knows where you're going with your thinking. He knows what the thoughts and intents of the heart um, are. So the Lord always gets to the heart of the matter, and so coincidentally, we're going to be talking a little bit about the heart of man, particularly when we get to day five here. But that's getting to day four here. As always, we can find three levels in the scripture here. We can find the, in, the outward part or the historical part. This is what God did. And this is how he did it. I mean, the details of science are not included in here in terms of all of the astrophysics and the um, um, other portions of science that were brought into existence by virtue of God speaking. So how did he do it? He spoke, and it was so. That's how he did it. Then we go a little bit deeper. We get to the inward meaning of what's taking place here, dealing with the heart and the nature of man. And then we get to the spiritual where we find the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because in day six, that's where we see that man is formed in the image of God. When we get to day seven, we're going to find out that day seven is not closed out, like all the other days are closed out. God will do something, and then it will say it was evening and morning the first day. God will do something else, and it was evening and morning the fifth day, same pattern, evening and morning sixth day. You get to the seventh day, it's not closed out. Indicative, that was the day that God blessed and he rests on. And so it's suggestive that after we get through this creative um, endeavor of God's, God, after he's completed everything and he looks back and sees that it is all, quote, very good, then from that point, we enter into eternal rest, a place where there is no night, a place where there is no darkness, but ever in light. And so the book of Revelation closes out with that in Revelation uh, Chapter 21 and 22, it speaks about how there is no need for the sun, there's no need for the moon to shine because it's shine in heaven because Christ himself is the light thereof. And so what is in view here is we're going to go through, we'll get to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to find out that Cain becomes a builder of cities. He builds a city and he names it after his son. 
Well, God is building a city too, and that's the city that Abraham was looking for when he was looking for a city whose builder with, he was looking for a city with foundation, whose builder and maker was God. So you'll find in the book of Genesis that generally speaking, Christians live in tents because they're pilgrims and they're just passing through, whereas non-believers set down roots and they build cities in this world. It's when Jacob puts down some roots that he has trouble with his daughter um, Dinah. So again, big patterns in scripture. Revelation 21, 23, again, for the glory of the Lord did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And Revelation 22, verse 5 says, there shall be no night there. So that's where we're going. And so day seven intimates of that because it, it's not closed out. However, we're not there yet. We do not yet have our glorified uh, bodies. And so while we might be there in spirit through the resurrection of Christ, uh, we're not there physically. We're down here in our bodies, which will end up in the grave. So with respect to uh, um, the chronology in terms of what we're going through here in Genesis, we find that in day four, God creates luminaries, and he speaks, and it was so. And so that's how he brought these things into existence. He talks about how there is a sun to rule the day, there is a moon to rule the night, and there are stars in the darkened places of space that um, give forth light, all of which are to give light upon the earth, which we can appreciate is um, a dark and evil place, particularly absent the light of God, the light that God has created. So as we mentioned in the past, obviously God has set these things up as symbolic in nature to represent um, certain ministries that he has um, in view in terms of declaring his own uh, glory. Christ, we know, is uh, represented by the sun. That's Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which I'll talk about a little bit later. The moon, we talked about, that rules the night, that reflects the light of the sun. And stars um, represent uh, Christians. And so uh, the scripture sets that before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and other places where the Lord says in verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory for the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So he sets before us something that I suppose a scientist would appreciate, because all the stars are different. But he puts this in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, right after he's told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about how he has given different gifts to the saints. As he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 6, there are diversities of operations, but it is of the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, Christian speaking, to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit, the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And so the Lord articulates a number of gifts that are given to people, but they all come from God. But all these worketh that by the one and selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he, God, wills. So, 1 Corinthians 15, we appreciate that the stars are all different one from another and that God has given gifts, different gifts um, unto men. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, we are told that we are to walk in such a way as to glorify God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation 
among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So Christians are going out in the world. Individually, we are lights in the world. And the Lord has told us that in Matthew um, chapter 5. He says, ye are the light of the world. And so the intention is that uh, we would walk in such a way as to reflect God's glory. And the Lord says that, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we are to go out into the world. So the stars represent Christians scattered throughout the world. Now, with respect to the sun and the moon and the stars, we would appreciate that the sun never ceases to give light. If you look upon it, you're going to go blind. It represents, obviously, the unapproachable glory of Christ. The moon is the church and reflects the glory of the sun And you can look upon it. And our desire is that people would look upon the church and that they would see Christ. They would appreciate who he is and what he has done for his people. The moon, as we know, on a monthly cycle, waxes and wanes as a function to the degree that the earth comes between the moon and the sun. And again, Scripture talks about that. So as a Christian, if you have your heart set on the alluring things of this world, in other words, if the world comes between you and the sun, then your faith is going to um, get smaller, it will, it will uh, wane, and uh, your um, glory, how you glorify the Lord, will wane also. And we are indeed warned against that very thing. We are warned that we are not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If the love of the Father is not in you, you are dead in trespasses and sin clearly. So we're to be careful that we don't get caught up in the things of the world. And think about one of the temptations of Christ where Satan took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the glory of the world. And the Lord's response was, get get thee hence, get behind me. The, 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 The world has nothing to offer the Christian. It is simply alluring, but there is nothing more. There's no substance to it. God is going to burn it up and destroy it in the last day. So, again, the moon represents the church and is to reflect the glory of God. It is to testify about his character and his nature. Um, Another interesting thing is that when the church presents itself as being in the stead of or in the place of Christ... It comes between the sun and the earth. And when the moon comes between the sun and the earth, we call it an eclipse. The sun cannot be seen, and the earth is in darkness. So when the moon comes between the sun, or the church comes between Christ and, uh, and the people or the world, then the glory of Christ is not seen. So the moral is, don't ever stand in the place of Christ. We are to represent and point to Christ but never stand in his stead. Isaiah 42, 8 says that, quote, My glory will I not give to another. God has given his glory to his son. He's given it to Christ, and he has not given it to another. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No one is to come between uh, Christ and any persons. We are to ever to point to Christ. That the Pope would call himself the vicar of Christ or in place of Christ is clearly antithetical to Scripture. It's... Um, It is absolutely positively wrong. We point to Christ and never stand in his way. He is the source of all wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. And so when somebody is lacking wisdom, the Lord says, Ask me and I will give liberally. So if you're looking for help, trust in the Lord, look to him, and we as saints point to him. Now in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1, the Lord tells us that these things are given for signs. It says, For signs for seasons, and for days, and for years. 
So they are to be given for signs. So in Psalm 19, the Lord affirms that. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, I will read that. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Go outside and look up, and the stars in the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Look at the dirt ball you're standing on. It declares his handiwork. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and um, 20, where the Lord says very clearly there this very thing. And, and Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. These are things that every person can know. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Verse 20 of Romans 1, For the invisible things of him, the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world, in other words, by the virtue of what he has done, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is telling you in his word, there is no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing as an agnostic. Everybody knows that God exists because God has showed it to them. And that truth is in their hearts. They can know his eternal power and his Godhead. And that means they know ultimately they're going to face judgment. Hebrews tells us that, that all men are in bondage to fear of death. God has showed these things to them. So as far as seasons are concerned and signs, that God has put those heavenly lights that we would appreciate them and glorify him. Verse 3 of Psalm 19, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I don't care where you are on the planet, the creation is a, testi a testimony unto God's eternal power and Godhead. Verse 4, Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Now he's going to give us some symbolic language here with respect to the sun. We know that the sun represents Christ, and Christ is the bride uh, groom, the bridegroom of the church. So in verse 5 he says, um, verse 4, in them he set, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, a tent or a temple, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Well, again, all things are naked and open under the eyes uh, with whom we have to do. The witness and testimony of Christ is up there in the sky every single day, every place in the world, and every human being can appreciate what God has done and know of his eternal power and, um, and Godhead. So he has set this in front of us here. Now, and again, with respect to the gospel and the Son representing Christ, as, we, um, as I mentioned in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says, The Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So the, the Lord is helping us to appreciate that Christ, of course, is the Son, S-O-N, of righteousness, and yet it's referred to in Malachi as the S-U-N of righteousness with healing in his wings. Now, interestingly enough, with respect to the earth and the planets and the stars, it is, um, it is just like man to think that um, the sun, Christ, revolves around the earth or revolves around himself. But obviously, God being the center of all things, the earth revolves around the sun, as does man. 
the moon around the earth and the earth and the moon revolve around the sun, which is the way God would intend things to glorify himself. Whereas the sun might arise, um, the sun of righteousness would arise with healing in his wings, speaking of Christ. In 1 Peter 1.19, it talks about uh, that how we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, we can understand the things that are written in the gospel because the day star arise in your hearts. So the day star, of course, is Christ. Christ himself identifies himself as the bright and morning star. So again, back in Genesis chapter 1, as these luminaries are placed in the sky to witness and testimony of Christ, we also can appreciate the gospel in there as the light shining on a man's heart and giving him um, increased um, revelation of who Christ is. So we can see in here how God is working on man, and we can also see the gospel here in day four. But if we just take a few steps forward and just look at it in the simple superficial language, this is the historical um, account of what God did and when he did it. On day four, he, he uh, put these luminaries in the firmament of the heavens. Now, there's a lot of scientists that can't wrap their heads around what's written here because the light supposedly was done in day one, and then we got day four here. We've got a sun, so how can you have light without the sun? And we talked about that being background radiation in a historical context, but God uses different language in Genesis on day one than he does here in day four. In day one, it's the word light, and the day 14 here, with respect to the heavenly bodies, he refers to them as luminaries. Luminaries, so different light, and obviously teaching us about the spiritual light one might receive by grace from Christ versus an external revelation of who he is. Not a coincidence that on day four is when Christ was seen by the disciples having risen from the dead on day three. So again, we see the gospel is, uh, is in here. Now, with respect to the physical creation in terms of the historical context, has anybody ever told you that the Bible is not a science book? Um, had a conversation with the deacon earlier the week, and one of his relatives said that to me, said that to him. I have had people share that with me, too. The Bible is not a science book. It's a book on morals and faith only. And I asked the question, really? Is that, is that really true? If it's scientifically inaccurate, then it's inaccurate on morals and faith. So why would I waste my time reading it? It says of itself that it contains the scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. If it's not true scientifically, then it's not true morally or spiritually. The whole book is a book that I would question. Why would I waste my time uh, reading it? So, again, if it's scientifically inaccurate, when it says that it is the word of God and that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and all that is therein and that by uh, him was everything created, without him was not anything created. If I read that and yet I don't think to myself God has pulled together enough to give me an accurate account of what he created, then really it's, it's undermining any faith that a person might have in God. It's really setting up God to be a buffoon. You created it, but you, but you couldn't preserve your word. You didn't tell us accurately um, what he did. So it undermines the incredibility of the Bible on every account. So if man's going to sit over God in judgment in terms of the scientific statements of the Bible, clearly he's going to sit in judgment over all of the statements in the Bible. And what he has done as he has dethroned God in his own heart, if God ever were truly in that heart. 
And so we find ourselves with what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I'll read more on that later. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And that's what the Bible says about men, men that would declare their wisdom above the wisdom of God. Now, with respect to the issue uh, of science, I wanted to share with you that I had received a note from PG&E on my last PG&E bill that I'm going to get a California climate credit. You know that's going to become a debit at some point in the future. But I tell you what, this is pretty exciting here because it came out of landmark legislation called the, quote, Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. So what a wonderful program this is. These people are going to save the world from climate change. Now, I also have an ad here for an interesting book called Hot Talk cold science. And in this particular book, they have some wonderful scientists who are going to debunk all of the bad science with respect to um, global warming. Now, you can read all that. You can get bent out of shape about global warming issue. You can do that. Or, or you could read Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. Or you could read Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. One simple thing, and then you can go to sleep at night and you don't need to worry about global warming or climate change. Once they figured out that things aren't really getting hotter, they had to shift the narrative, as you know, to climate change because you know what? It does change. It was really cold last night and it's kind of warm this morning. In verse 22 of Genesis chapter 8, the Lord tells us, this is after the flood, the Lord says, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Okay, I'll help you understand that. There's no such thing as global warming. There's no such thing as climate change. And guess what? There's no change in man's heart before flood or after flood. That's what the Bible says, and that is my experience and what I've seen in the world. No change in man's heart. It's foolishness of things that are taking place. But what it is, and we'll get into this in Genesis chapter 4, a uh, little bit in 3, in Genesis 10 and 11, it's the Babylonian agenda to put the world in bondage, which we'll see begins really in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. So God has given us these celestial bodies for seasons, which means, like I said, the climate might change a little bit. So when I think of seasons, I think of winter, spring, summer, and fall. Winter represents death, spring represents birth, summer represents growth, and fall is harvest. And that is the Christian experience. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but we're born from above through Christ Jesus. We grow in Christ, and then finally comes the harvest where we are taken up into glory. So God has put these things for seasons that we would appreciate the gospel in the creative order. Now, as far as the days and years are concerned, if you want to know what time it is, look up. God's celestial clock is right up there now, and if you really want to get accurate, put a stick in the ground and call it a, uh, a sundial. <laughs> Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Um, 
Moving on to day five, we see that there's more work on the heart of man here. So outward, we have the historical thing where we see that God is creating animals which contain a soul. He's creating throughout these days life that is greater in complexity. So he's creating animals with a soul, meaning they have thoughts and they have imaginations and they have emotions. He's creating those things that are within the water and those things that are above the earth with instructions that they would be fruitful and multiply. And as we saw in here, like kind begets like kind. Fish make other fish. Um, Giraffes make giraffes. Pigs and dogs make pigs and dogs. I'm picking unclean animals. And yes, Christians beget Christians through the preaching of the gospel. So again, when you read this and look at the simplistic language therein, you should appreciate that evolution is a lie. When I pronounce it in my head, I always say evolution. It is nothing but a lie, again, intended to undermine God's creative account and therefore undermine God and undermine the gospel. There is no historical record whatsoever that would link one kind of animal with another kind as though they morphed from one to another or evolved from one to another. Lots of similarities in parts. You know, hearts, livers, kidneys, lungs, they're all kind of similar because God made it that way. But to be sure, birds have a respiratory and a digestive system and a bone structure that is unique to them because God made it so that they might fly above the earth in the open firmament of the heaven. Fish have a respiratory and a digestive system and a buoyancy system that is unique to them because God made it so that they might move about and plunge the depths of the water. There is nothing in Scripture anywhere or even in science to suggest that inanimate objects became adamate objects except by the creative work of God because he's going to take dust of the earth and form the man out of it. Genesis 1.20 says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly. And God saw that it was good. So outwardly, historically, we have a creative account. But inwardly, we're looking on God's work on the heart of man. As I said, these are soulless creatures which have thoughts, imaginations, and emotions. And with respect to the creatures that are articulated on day five, we have fish, fowl, and we have what's described uh, which translated as the word whale, but in other places it's translated as serpent or dragon. All of these things that are set here, fish, fowl, and this uh, um, creature that's described as a whale, they all have both good and evil connotations in Scripture. And as I mentioned before, we see in Genesis everything good that comes out of man, which is by the Spirit, and everything bad that comes out of man, which is through the flesh. We see in the book of uh, Luke chapter 5 that fish represent, we see in other places where fish represent men, but in Luke chapter 5 we see that some fish, they're caught in the net, some are put into the boat, and some of them uh, get away. And whereas we know that the Lord never loses anybody, we know that some fish represent Christians and other fish uh, represent um, non-elect or non-believers. The Lord says of his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Didn't say they're going to go out and catch everybody, but specific people. As far as fowls are concerned, um, a dove, we know, represents uh, the Holy Ghost. It's a type of the Holy Ghost. We see that in Scripture. We see that when uh, Noah releases a dove from the ark and it goes out into the world, it can't find a place for its foot because the only place to rest is in the ark of Christ. So we see where birds represent something positive. 
An eagle is described in Leviticus as an unclean animal and an abomination. And yet there are times when it is positive. In Psalm 103, it speaks about renewing our strength as of an eagle. That's positive. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we had read on perhaps the first day, we did Genesis, uh, the first day of Genesis chapter 1, um, we saw that, um, that God cares for us as an eagle broods over their nest, you know, like turning the eggs, and we saw that was from Genesis 1, verse 2, where we see the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the deep. So birds can have positive and negative connotations. Um, in terms of having a bad connotation, we see that in the parable of the sower, that seed is sown, and the Lord describes the seed that is sown as the Word of God, and what happens? Birds come and eat up the, the seeds. And then he explains it and he says, well, the, the devil is the fowl there that comes and snatches the, the seeds. So clearly there's an evil connotation associated with the bird. Now, so it is true with respect to what is set before us here and day five with respect to the inner workings of man. Um, where more complicated life forms of soulish life are set before us here, we can appreciate that um, these uh, soulish creatures represent the thoughts and imaginations and emotions of men. Forgot to mention with respect to the whale that sometimes it's, it's again, a serpent. Sometimes it's positive. When Aaron casts his rod on the ground before Pharaoh, that's a positive uh, serpent because it swallows the other serpents, evil serpents, from Pharaoh's magicians, both positive and negative. So, again, with respect to the thoughts and imaginations and emotions of men, they can be both positive when led by the Spirit when directed by the Spirit, or they can be negative when uh, directed by the will of man. So when they're positive, the thoughts and imaginations and emotions of men would soar to lofty heights, as the fowl do, head up towards heaven, as though mounting up with the wings of an eagle, or they might plunge the depths of the sea, whereby we might search the deep things of God. For in all of these things, God is praised and glorified. Now, I draw your attention to Psalm 148, which our deacon read uh, before us this morning. In Psalm 148, you find that in each of the days of creation, it says that the things that are created on those days will praise God. And so, again, there's a parallel between the creative um, days and what's written in Psalm 148. In verse 2 of Psalm 140, it says, Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The next verse is day 4. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise ye him, all ye stars of light. Those are the luminaries that he created on day 4. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. That's day 2. Verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commandeth, and they were created. All of creation praises the Lord. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps. That word dragons is translated as whales in Genesis chapter 1 on day, on day 5 there. That's day, so day 5 is praising him. Verse 9, mountains and all hills and fruitful trees and all cedars. That's day 3, they would praise them. Verse 10, beasts and all cattle creeping things and flying fowl. It's day five and six. Kings of the earth and all people, princes and judges of the earth. Day six is when God creates man. So in this wonderful psalm, the Lord um, uses it to help us appreciate that everything that he's created on days one through six 
will praise um, him. Now, but we also can appreciate that when man turns himself away from God and when man lifts himself up and glorifies God, not as God, nor is he thankful um, for all that God has done for himself, then we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1 where the Lord clearly sets before us that his foolish heart is uh, darkened. I'll pick it up in verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Those are the things that God had created, which we see on day five and day six. So what's the result of that? Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. Evolution is a lie. Climate change is a lie. All of these things that man comes up with to denigrate the word of God, they're all lies. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Um, Amen. The Lord sets these things before us. He wants us to appreciate that these things, these idols that men set up, are in the heart of men. I'm not going to read this section, but if you wanted to look deeper into this on your own, you could go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8, read verses 8 through 12. In there, I'll just describe it. Um, The Lord has taken uh, Ezekiel uh, in the spirit and taken him from where he is in Babylon and taken him to the temple to show him what's going on in Jerusalem. And he shows him that there's a hole in the wall in the temple. He tells him to dig, and he sees a door. And the Lord says, "Uh, go in and look at it. And what is he doing? He's looking into the heart of man. And he sees all sorts of awful things there that they are doing there, that they are, um, he says, I see creeping things, abominable beasts, and all idols in the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. These are the things that are on their heart, which he shares with us in Ezekiel chapter 14. So nevertheless, God has done all of these wonderful things, but professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and so God lets them go unto themselves. And what we see in the world today is a result of that. We see the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all those who hold uh, the truth and unrighteousness and engage in ungodly activities. I'm going to go find that and quote it correctly because that's what we see where man is willfully holding the truth away. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Men are actively pushing away the revelation and the truth of God. Second Peter chapter 3 is going to talk about how man willfully is ignorant of the flood. Evidence everywhere, man is willfully ignorant of. So he's holding the truth in unrighteousness. So Again, having looked at what we see here in Genesis chapter 1, we can appreciate that this uh, development of man goes from the simple creatures to the more complicated creature till we finally have the epitome of God's creation, which is man, where God forms him out of the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So, Lord willing, next week we'll talk about day 6, where the Lord will set before us um, greater details about man in the image of, of God. So what we need to ever do here is appreciate the omnipotence and omniscience of God and glorify him. 
We need to appreciate how utterly dependent upon him that we are, for by him all things consist. Every good gift comes from above, and a man can receive nothing except which is given to him from heaven. For of him and to him and through him are all things. God should be glorified in everything and should be praised in all things, and we read that in Psalm 148. God is so great and so glorious that not only did he create everything, but he did it in such a way as to teach us about himself and to teach us about ourselves and where all things are headed, which is to him in glory. Amen. Not all things, Christians. Amen.